0: Welcome to Sentient Planet.
1: I think one of the big things that we've learned is, you know, that they can and do recover from past abuse and trauma in their life. Sort of the best way to let them do that is through relationships with each other. You know, as humans, we think that we can fix everything, but sometimes they just need each other. They need a safe and healthy environment. We provide that safe and healthy environment and they kind of just live their life.
0: I'm Susan Woodward. One of the most powerful ways to benefit our non-human animal kin is to provide them sanctuary a place for a few individual animals to escape the abuse and trauma they have suffered at our hands and live out their lives free of pain and fear. There's a growing movement of humans around the world whose love and respect for animals is taking them on this path. I'm sure you've seen the videos of rescued moon bears in Vietnam, rhinos and elephants in Kenya, and I bet you know at least one dog or cat rescuer in your local community. Today, though, we're telling the story of a micro-sanctuary for farm animals. Kate Slilovich and Hope Hillman run Heartwood Haven on 2.5 acres in their backyard in the town of Gig Harbor in Washington State. From there, they have rehomed and rehabilitated more than 1,200 animals, mostly pigs and roosters, rescuing them from appalling situations, including the criminal, multi-billion-dollar cockfighting industry. Why pigs and roosters? Kate and Hope say it's because they're some of the most unwanted and therefore most poorly treated animals. The micro-sanctuary movement is rising up to counter the misinformation that taints public perceptions about the value of pigs, roosters and other farm animals, helping us to understand that their lives are just as worthy as those of our pets. So let's dig in and meet Kate and Hope, who in this interview open our eyes to the cruelty of our 6,000 year old cockfighting pastime and learn a thing or two about the charisma and intelligence of the pigs and roosters for whom they care? Caden Hope, welcome to Sentient Planet. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. This is not how we originally planned. To do this podcast, I was really hoping to come up to Gig Harbor, where you guys are situated, and check out Heartwood Haven in person and meet all of your animals. But as if the pandemic were not enough, we now have several inches of snow and ice, which makes travel a little bit dodgy. So thanks for joining me over Zoom instead.
2: Yeah, you're welcome. Um, Hopefully you'll make it out here after the snow melts and we're back to our scheduled uh, rain program.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I would love that. Um, And I do intend to do that. Thank you so much. Can you guys tell me how Heartwood Haven got started and when?
2: Yeah, so we started Heartwood Haven about four and a half years ago. Hope and I bought the property out here in Gig Harbor and we were planning on just living here. Uh, After a little while, we learned about a cockfighting bust that was happening states and states away. From what I remember, there were approximately 100 roosters who were rescued and they needed to find homes. And so we decided to take one rooster in and we named him Porter. And Porter turned out to be just the coolest rooster ever. (laughs) He was very charismatic and he loved to be around people and he loved to spend time with us. He would go for car rides with us and he would hang out indoors with the cats and the dogs anytime that we were around and not paying attention to him, he would make it known and he would want our our attention. And so Porter was kind of our gateway into it. He taught us that roosters are really cool. We weren't really expecting him to really change our minds like that. And after him, he inspired us to start rescuing roosters who were either confiscated from cockfighting busts or who were dumped. And then we started rescuing other farmed animals instead. Which one
0: of you heard about this cockfighting bust that occurred?
2: It was, yeah, just something that we saw in some local animal groups and um, we just felt inspired. We had the land here and we thought, hey, why not? To be completely honest, I think it was really me who was pushing for it more at the time.
0: Is that you, Kate, or is that you, Hope? Me, Kate. Okay, great. So I can distinguish between your voices. You know, that's a pretty random rescue. Were you guys already animal lovers? I I would imagine so.
1: Kate's been a huge animal lover since she was a kid. At that time, we also, we had recently adopted a dog from the shelter and we had a cat wander onto our property that kind of adopted us and then we took care of him. So yeah, I think that we're both big animal lovers.
0: So that was about four years ago. How many animals have you guys rescued in that time period?
1: Um, I think it's uh, closing in around 1,200 now.
0: Wow. So you don't have them all at your sanctuary there, but you also um, help find those animals' homes. Tell me kind of how you operationally are set up.
1: I mean, every day we get between one and 20 requests to take animals in. And uh, we also work with our local animal control that gets animals from cruelty cases or neglect cases or criminal cases like the cockfighting cases. And then at that point, we kind of have to make a decision about whether we have space for them here or they might be a good candidate for adoption. Part of our adoption program is to rehabilitate them while they're here. For example, if uh, we get a big case of cockfighting roosters or something like that, we'll work with them here if we have the capacity. Sometimes it's hundreds of birds. and those cases, we just kind of have to send a call out to the public. And it's really the public that helps us rescue so many animals. You know, Without our adoption program, we wouldn't be able to do that at all. But there are a lot of compassionate people out there that do want to help animals and do want to help them turn their lives around.
0: 1,200 animals, that is, that is a lot of animals to find safe haven for.
1: Yeah. Most of them have been birds, waterfowl, ducks, geese or chickens, and roosters. We've done a few big cases of uh, cockfighting roosters and then a few big hen rescue cases where there's like 200 of them that come at a time. It adds up quickly once you're able to do adoption and have a good adoption program in place. Yes.
0: I've seen on your website and your social media account on Instagram, lots and lots of photos of pigs as well. So that obviously is another animal that you guys are focused on. Well, you're focused in, on farm animals in general.
1: Yeah, we have a big focus here on pigs and roosters, probably because they're the two that are the most in need of help of all the farm animals. And most of our pigs here have come from cruelty and neglect cases with animal control. And once they're confiscated by animal control, there's really no outlet for them in this area. There's nowhere for them to go. They'll be confiscated from cruelty cases and then if sanctuary like Heartwood Haven isn't able to help, then they're sent to auction, which is sort of ironic in itself that they're coming from a a bad case and going to end up somewhere where perhaps they may be killed.
0: Right. Why is it that pigs in particular are one of the most abused or one of the animal species that are most in need?
1: I think a lot of it is there's this misconception about pigs on the internet that they stay small or they're good pets to have indoors with dogs. And there's a lot of misinformation out there. And I think it's also because they're one of the animals that breed so quickly. Kate can speak more to that.
2: Yeah, I think it's a number of different issues. There's a big problem with like, quote unquote, mini pigs. There's a lot of misinformation, as Hope had mentioned, about their size, temperament, attitude, needs. A lot of people get into having pet mini pigs and they expect them to stay really small or be like a cat. Pretty quickly, they realize that they don't have the capacity to take care of the animal. They don't want to take care of the animal. The animal's grown too big. So It's very common for people to buy cute little tiny piglets and then want to rehome them within like weeks, months. So that's one component of it. There's a lot of bad information about feeding their care and stuff. And then on top of that, there's also larger pigs, what we call either big pigs or farm pigs. And they really are just seen as a product. You know, they're just seen as flesh, meat. People don't really have them as pets. There's only one place they go, it's to be slaughtered. Right. And so anytime that there are pigs who maybe people buy them and intend to kill them, but then they pretty quickly learn that they're extremely intelligent, very charismatic, very funny and unique and much smarter than like dogs and other domesticated animals. Mm -hmm. They realize that, no, I'm not really willing to do that. They grow to really like them. And so finding homes for those pigs is nearly impossible. People don't want to have, you know, a 500 to 1,000 pound pet. That's a lot of animal to care for. Yeah. With a lot of farmed animals, like farm pigs or cows, they don't really have many places to go, many safe options of havens.
0: So does that mean that those animals, when they come through Heartwood Haven, that you cannot always help them?
2: We try to help the most desperate cases. We'll work with other rescues to find homes for the animals who are very desperate. There are times when we're just not able to help. We try to focus on the cases where animals really need us the most. Like they don't have anyone else advocating for them.
0: Gotcha. You have this slogan that I've seen, um, life on their terms. Can you elaborate on that for me?
1: I think our philosophy here is just letting the animals be who they are, you know, be who they want to be and do the things that they want to do as long as they're safe and you know, they're not hurting each other. But it's really just letting the animals thrive in sort of a natural environment. Because here at the sanctuary, they live in a wooded area. All of our pigs and uh, chickens and turkeys, they live in the woods and they kind of, you know, they have breakfast at a set time. But other than that, they sort of develop friendships with each other and sort of do whatever it is that they want to do.
0: What's it like for you guys observing animals living on their terms? What have you learned from your four years observing them on your sanctuary?
1: We actually have a monthly series called Animal Friends, where we talk about the relationships that the animals develop here and how it aids in their recovery from abuse. We have a pig here named Boris and he was abandoned on a property when he was blind and he was just left there in a pile of trash. And he came here and he was really struggling. He was having a hard time, you know, he seemed depressed. And then he met another pig here. Well, before that, he met a number of other pigs that he didn't really like. And then he met another pig, finally, Linus, that really like helped him come out of a shell and lose that depression and kind of gain confidence in himself and gain confidence in being around other pigs. And he's had a total transformation this year. And he's just a completely different pig. So I think one of the big things that we've learned is, you know, that they can and do recover from past abuse and trauma in their life. Sort of the best way to let them do that is through relationships with each other. You know, as humans, we think that we can fix everything, but sometimes they just need each other, you know, and and they need a safe and healthy environment. We provide that safe and healthy environment and they kind of just live their life.
0: And obviously it gives you the opportunity to experience the individuality that animals have as well. I think a lot of humans think of animals as being a species and they think about numbers and abstract terms like that. But when you've got a sanctuary like this and you're bringing in these animals and watching them and their personalities and the relationships they're developing, that gives you a whole different type of relationship with them.
2: Yeah. For me, one of the biggest things that I have been able to learn in living with the animals here and interacting with them daily is just how much they are like us, humans. We try to kind of separate ourselves from wild animals and from domesticated animals and think that we're kind of superior to them and we're smarter than them and stuff like that. And in reality, what we see is that these animals do have a certain moral compass and they make friends, they understand each other, even across species. One of the stories that I like to tell is we had a pig here named Fiona and Fiona came to us with a broken back and she had to be on stall rest for about eight weeks while her uh, broken vertebra healed because she had to be in a very small confined space and pigs are so smart, they get bored very easily. We wanted to provide some kind of entertainment for her, but she couldn't like get around. So we introduced a chicken to her and they became friends. If anyone knows anything about pigs is that they are totally completely motivated by food. They will finish every last little scrap of food and their sense of smell is amazing. So they finish everything they never leave a crumb behind. And Fiona, became friends with this chicken, Marion. And Marion is on a bit of a diet. She has some special needs. Marion would complain to her <laughs> that she's hungry, that she doesn't get fed enough. And so what Fiona would do every single day is leave a small handful of her food pellets with maybe like a little bit of vegetables or a little bit of fruit. And when I would show the bowl to Fiona, like, hey, Fiona, if you didn't finish your dinner, she'd grumble at me and toss the bowl to the side And I know that she was telling me like, you guys don't feed my pet chicken enough. This is for her, I saved it for her. And so she would share a little bit of her dinner every single day with her pet chicken, Marion. And we have videos of them eating together and enjoying each other's company. That to me shows that animals are very much like us. They have the same kind of set of emotions. With pigs especially, they are exactly like people. They get pleasure from company of other pigs. They protect each other. They fight like siblings as well. And just watching them is really amazing.
0: Yeah, that's a great story. Are those two animals still friends?
2: Fiona, because she had the broken back and she had damage to her spinal cord, she ended up passing away from complications related to that after she was with us for about a year and a half or so. So, Fiona's no longer with us, but Marion has other friends now.
0: You say on your website that you've managed to reach 4 million people out there in the world through all sorts of different means, I can imagine. How are you reaching out to people and educating them about the value of animals and what they bring to our lives?
2: Besides rescuing animals and providing them with a safe haven, we also want to connect people with the animals here and connect them with the stories to show people that farmed animals are exactly like their beloved pets. They have the same mannerisms. As we're sitting here, I'm looking outside and one of our pet pigs, they've all gone stir crazy with the snow and they all have cabin fever, (laughs) Linus. He is running around with hay and throwing it around just like you would imagine a puppy would be playing with a toy. So we want to show people that farmed animals They all have their own personalities. People can relate to them and learn from them because there are a lot of misnomers or plain lies out there about farmed animals. For example, pigs are dirty or there's even a saying, you know, as happy as a pig in mud. And people think that pigs are dumb or that chickens are they have a bird brain and things mm-hmm. like that. And so, we want to show that those are misconceptions and that farmed animals are intelligent and they have feelings and sentience, just like other animals, and they want to live just like other animals do. And that there's not really a difference between a pig and a whale or a chicken and another bird that people might not eat. And so we want to just make that connection for people so that people start thinking about where these products come from that they consume on a daily basis. They're coming from animals who are intelligent, who have friends, who like to cuddle, who communicate with one another, who give snout kisses, who sing to their babies, who are protective and have the same instincts that we do and they have animal families, just like we have human families.
0: Hi, it's Susan. Sentient Planet amplifies the voices of the species with whom we share the Earth, and the humans dedicated to their urgent defense and preservation. We're providing additional content at patreon.com slash sentient planet. I hope you'll check it out and consider supporting us for a few dollars a month. Thank you. What are some of the big facts that you share with... Members of the public, when they come through to visit your sanctuary. So, some of the big facts out there in terms of just the sheer numbers of animals that are exploited by humans and how?
2: I do want to make people aware that what we're doing, because we're a farm sanctuary, we are quite different from, you know, a cat or dog rescue organization. Cats and dogs in this country and in a lot of the world are seen as companions, they hold a different status compared to other animals that are seen below them. You know, in the United States, there are so many cat and dog rescues out there. And if we look at like the numbers of animals affected, if we look at cat and dog shelters, there are about five or six million cats and dogs that are euthanized in the United States due to lack of space or resources in high kill shelters. Every year. Every year, five to six million cats and dogs. But you take that number and you multiply it by 10,000 and you get 60 billion. That's about how many farmed animals are killed every single year for food.
0: Crazy. What a number. It's such a huge number. I was just talking with Claire Bass, who is the executive director of the Humane Society International, the UK branch. Her number was actually 88 billion animals around the world killed every year for meat and um, dairy.
2: Right. That number, you know, is going up. It's kind of scary because as the number of vegans and vegetarians is going up, the number of animals killed worldwide is going up as well.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting paradox that I've explored before. How do you guys, you know, what's your take on that?
2: At least in the U.S., The demand for animal products is not directly related to consumer demand. It's it's a lot of lobbying from the meat and dairy industry. There are a lot of animals killed who never make it, products never even make it to the shelves. They're just kind of killed because the farmers are getting subsidies Mm. to grow these animals. And then they either, you know, go bad on the shelves or whatever. Yeah, the the demand isn't there, but we're still pumping all this money into these industries that are dying out.
0: Could we talk a little bit about, you know, I just wonder how much you guys know about cockfighting, given that the first animal that you rescued was a rooster. I'd love to learn more about that and educate our listeners about that, because it's a much bigger industry than I realized. So i just wondering if you could help us understand what that industry is, how many animals are involved, what sort of money is involved, that kind of thing.
2: Sure. We rescue about 100 cockfighting roosters every year. One of the most shocking things to me is that originally all farmed animals come from wild animals that were domesticated. Farmed pigs originally were various wild pigs that were bred and then domesticated. Same for chickens and turkeys and stuff. Chickens originate from the jungles in Southeast Asia. They were domesticated as jungle fowl. And now all the different breeds of chickens that we have come from those. I originally thought that they were domesticated for meat or eggs. But it actually turns out that chickens were domesticated for entertainment, for cockfighting.
0: No way. Yes. Wow.
2: Because of that, it's the same breeds that are still used for cockfighting. They are called red jungle fowl, jungle fowl, and there's some other Asian breeds of chickens that are used for cockfighting. It's uh, very similar how in dogfighting, it's pit bulls that are used, you know, not chihuahuas or beagles or German shepherds. There are certain breeds that are used specifically for that. And mm-hmm. so that continues. Cockfighting is a multi billion dollar industry. It is very profitable. It's tied in with illegal gambling, arms trade, drug trade, things like that. Hmm. While it is illegal ac- across the United States, to be honest, I don't even know the, the scale of how many animals are affected, but it's huge.
0: So this is a very strange form of entertainment. And if the industry's huge, that would indicate there's a lot of American people out there that enjoy that kind of blood sport.
2: Yeah, about two or three years ago, uh, about 20 or 30 minutes away from us, there was an active cockfight that was stormed by law enforcement, and animal control were there, and animal control on the spot had to euthanize over 300 roosters. Oh, jeez. Just in one single event. So this is in Washington state? And this is in Washington state. Uh, many people here don't hear about cockfighting. I think that there's certain areas where cockfighting is more popular in states like Kentucky and Arkansas. I think it's a lot more popular. It's very shocking for anyone who's from Washington that there's cockfighting in Washington state. Another fact that I tell people is that we primarily work with one single animal control authority here close to us that services part of King County. King County is where Seattle is based, but it also includes some other outlying cities, so they only service a part of King County, and we get a hundred birds from them every single year. Now, if you imagine all the other counties besides King County across Washington State that aren't doing anything about cockfighting, because most animal control isn't doing anything about cockfighting, it's allowed to happen. Because: I think it's because they're just
1: chickens. Okay. I think it's also related to the resources that they don't have. Typically, the outcome for these cockfighting roosters is that they are euthanized. And part of that is just because there's some fear that if rescues get involved and the roosters are adopted back out to the public, there will be more issues.
0: What kind of issues are they concerned about?
1: Just that the roosters would be used again for more cockfighting or that they would go to a home where they would just be bred with other chickens to produce more cockfighting roosters. I
0: see. So they're concerned that primarily that, yeah, they they would end up going back into the same illicit industry. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: And a lot of the cases that we've dealt with have been from repeat offenders for cockfighting. They have the birds confiscated and they're not allowed to participate in those activities again. But then a couple years later, it's generally the same people, at least from the animal control that we work with.
0: Can you guys describe for us exactly what cockfighting is? What is the activity? What happens to the animals?
1: There's typically a lot of training beforehand. They have their combs and wattles cut off, and that's generally to prevent a lot of bleeding during the fights. And then there's a lot of training that is involved. They can be injected with drugs, methamphetamines. That's typically what they find when they raid these big cockfighting cases. I believe that sometimes they use other smaller birds to train and then they enter a ring where there's just betting on which bird will win.
0: So they're, they're trained to be aggressive and um, and fight other birds?
2: What happens is that the birds are basically taught that they have to fight or that they're going to die. Any bird that shows submissive qualities that they want to run away from the fight, they are culled, they're killed. The cockers, the people training these birds, they only keep the birds that are showing the most aggression, a more dominant kind of qualities. Gotcha. They get poked with like fake chicken legs and they'll hold them like by the tail and make them run on a treadmill to bulk them up. And they're given not only amphetamines to make them more aggressive, they are also given steroids. And this is happening, you know, every single day. They don't have any kind of peace. They live in a tiny little cage across from other birds. They're constantly irritated. They're pumped full of drugs and synthetic hormones. In the ring or during the actual cockfight, they are also strapped with razor blades called gaffs that are strapped to their spurs on their legs in order to inflict more damage on Mm. the opponent. With birds, it's normal to fight over resources, you know, but then the loser runs away and it's all peaceful and fine. But during the cockfight, any bird that tries to run away, they get picked up and put right in front of their opponent and it's a fight to death. It's very often times that both birds are going to end up dying because they're fighting with knives.
0: Right. And on the sidelines, the audience is betting on winners and all this money's being exchanged, and it's a very, very sick-sounding activity. What can be done about it?
1: I think the biggest thing is awareness. I think a lot of people, like Kate mentioned earlier, don't realize that this is happening. At some point, there needs to become some sort of harsher laws or penalties in place?
2: Yeah, the penalty for animal cruelty in Washington state is $500 per count of animal cruelty.
0: And that can be any form of animal cruelty?
2: Yes, any form of animal cruelty. And it might come with some kind of short prison sentence sometimes with COVID that's not happening. We have a case where somebody had four roosters who we took in they were fined $2,000 later on, like a year down the road. This year, we took in several dozen chickens from them. They weren't allowed to have chickens because these roosters that are being bred and trained and stuff, they can be worth thousands of dollars, sometimes $10,000. If you're being fined $500 for account of animal cruelty, people make millions of dollars off of cockfighting. Right. The punishment isn't really going to deter anyone who's making some serious cash.
0: Is there any animal welfare organisation that you're aware of who is leading a campaign on behalf of roosters?
1: Typically that's just locally that happens. Even uh, amongst sanctuaries, there's not a lot of people just because it is so difficult. Our largest case has been over 100 And that's a lot of cockfighting roosters that you then have to give individual space to and they can't be in with each other for them to recover. They need to be out of eyesight of all the other cockfighting roosters and it's just extremely difficult. The other
2: reasons that cockfighting is still happening partially is again kind of public opinion that they're just chickens oftentimes when we are doing the cockfighting cases people will be upset that we're actually rescuing these roosters mm. why can't we rescue some other roosters that are you know nicer or they have a friend who has a rooster that needs a home and why aren't we rescuing those nice roosters that were raised by kids why are we rescuing these kind of roosters who are deemed to be dangerous
0: right and of course your focus is to take in the animals that are in most need
2: Yes. If there's a rooster out there who was raised by a family, you know, that family can do the work to find a home for that rooster, just like we're having to do the work to find a home for the animals that we rescue. Except the cases that we take in, there is nobody who is going to take in these animals. Once animal control confiscates the roosters, we have about five days to find homes for all of them. Otherwise, they're at risk of euthanasia. Gotcha. People think that the roosters are going to be really mean or aggressive. And oftentimes, with the cockfighting cases, the roosters that come in are actually very young. They haven't fully matured. They haven't undergone any training yet. So, if we catch them in that period before they're about like two years old, they oftentimes don't have any issues. They don't have any trauma that has been reinforced in their mind. We don't even have to rehabilitate them. They can go straight to a family home. And that's what we typically do. And we will typically keep the roosters who need to overcome the training and the trauma in order to get better. And then the other thing that makes cockfighting busts really difficult is finding homes for all the roosters. Roosters are the most unwanted animal out there. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants roosters. People just want hens. And so finding homes for roosters, period, is very difficult.
0: As the voice for roosters here, what would you say to somebody like me who has um, six hens and probably enough room for a rooster, but I'm hesitant because I like the peaceful harmony of the group that I currently have?
2: We try not to like convince anyone to do anything that's, I guess, against their own wishes. So,
0: but what about a re-education? I mean, it, um, it sounds like I'm probably wrong in my assumptions there. I hope. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, You're certainly not wrong. We have Gabriel, a former cockfighting rooster here. He lives with our 30 hens and they sort of have a peaceful environment. But every spring when he gets a little rowdy, we're always like, come on, Gabriel. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we certainly understand that. But the one thing that I would tell you is that there are so many roosters out there that are just going to die. As long as you have enough hens The former cockfighting roosters are generally very sweet and very loving towards their hens. They're typically monogamous. So ours here that are permanent residents here, they live with one hen and they do really well with them. And we see them building the hen's nests and looking after them and taking care of them. Yeah,
0: that's very sweet.
1: When we started rescuing farmed animals, I
2: grew up part of my childhood on a farm. I've been around all kinds of animals, but I was unaware that when chicks hatch, they hatch in a one-to-one ratio. Just like human beings being born, there's typically about one male per one female. What I had seen is there's a backyard flock, there's about seven to 10 hens and one rooster. I literally thought that there's about one rooster hatched per 10 hens. And I have biology degrees, and I will admit that That was a really poor assumption. So it turns out that there's one to one ratio, but you never see a backyard flock with multiple roosters or one to one ratio of roosters and hens. Right. So, what happens to all the roosters out there? They all pretty much have the same fate. In large scale hatcheries, the roosters are auto sexed right away and they're ground up alive or suffocated or just thrown away in the trash. And in backyard flocks where people breed chickens, the roosters are typically raised and killed for meat. Most of them don't get to grow up. And so just the sheer act of breeding chickens to have hens, there's a mass slaughter of roosters. And so at the very least, I guess we want people to be aware of that and to not participate in that industry.
0: It reminds me of what happens to male calves in the dairy industry. A
1: mm-hmm.
0: yes. really sad yeah. situation, to say the least. Hope mentioned, Kate, that you have been an animal lover since childhood, and you just mentioned that you grew up on a farm. Can you tell us a little bit about your beginnings as a child and your connection with animals back then?
2: Uh, Yeah. So I grew up in Moldova. At the time when I was born, and up until I was about six years old, it was the former USSR. And then after the USSR fell apart, that republic became Moldova. It is located in Eastern Europe. It's actually the poorest country in all of Europe, and that's where I grew up. My great-grandmother had a farm, and we would get to go to the farm with my grandmother in the summertime. Myself, my cousin, and my older brother. I have some of my loveliest memories from the farm getting to go through the corn mazes and uh, getting chased by geese through poison ivy and stinging nettles. So I was exposed to various farmed animals. There was a big flock of sheep that the community had. People had cows and every night the cows would come home. So you would hear the cows coming through the streets and then they would come to the house where they live. And then every morning, you know, they get to go out back out to pasture and the geese every day would get to go down this little run and go out to the valley and go and graze for the day and then come back home in the evening. Not in the summers, we lived in the city. It was the capital of Moldova. It's called Kishinyov. and it's a small city and there are lots of stray cats and dogs and stuff because spay and neuter doesn't exist. People are very poor and animals are just not treated very well. I would save my lunches from school and like stash them in my backpack pockets. And after school, I had like little pregnant mom dogs that I would go feed and stuff like these lunches that I would stash away and get to see them, you know, give birth and grow up and stuff. And of course, nobody knows that I'm doing this, but I'm just saving this food just so I can go feed the street dogs and stuff. And I I don't know how many animals I've brought home from either classes that had a community gerbil or hamster or rat. They would have to go home with someone for the weekend and it would always be me volunteering to bring them home (laughs) (laughs) or little orphan strays that I would bring home. So you've been rescuing animals
0: for decades.
2: Yeah, and then once my family moved to the United States, around when I was 11 or 12 years old. We had some dogs that we had adopted and I actually worked at a vet clinic during my high school and college years. So I learned a lot of veterinary medicine and animal care that way as well.
0: And now you have Heartwood Haven. So that was a pretty much a natural progression, it sounds like.
2: Yeah, it was certainly not something that we had really planned for. Hope and I had never talked about starting an animal rescue or animal sanctuary, like, ever. When we bought the property and moved here, we had no plans to start an animal sanctuary. And it was really something that we were inspired to do once we learned about the fate of these animals and the more facts we learned about the animals being affected. It made sense. I've been vegan for um, nearly 20 years or so. I went vegan when I was in high school because I watched some videos of industrial farming practices and how cows and chickens and things are treated on factory farms, you know, where the majority of animal products come from. And after seeing that truth, I was no longer able to participate in consuming those animals. Right. Despite being shown the farm life when I was young, I didn't see any of the cruelty. It was really just kind of idyllic. You know, I got to frolic with the animals, the geese got to chase me, but I'd never seen any of the animals slaughtered or anything like that.
0: And certainly not on the scale of the industrialized systems that you're talking about that you saw on the videos.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: Do either one of you, so I'm just curious about the love angle here. So does each of you have a favorite, a favorite animal there at the sanctuary that you're particularly connected to?
2: Oh, man. It was my birthday a few days ago and I spoke to my niece and I showed her the different farmed animals in the snow outside and she was asking me, who's your favorite animal? Who's your favorite animal? And I was like, man, do I have to choose? <laughs> I don't know. It's rather hard to have to choose one of them because they're all listening to us. <laughs> I guess I would have to say pigs are one of my favorite species just because from the sheer intelligence and their communication styles and how sweet they are and their everything, the whole package. Okay. And out of all the pigs, I mean, I love every single one of them. I have a few that are least favorite, but, <laughs> <laughs> but they're all pretty great in their, own, in their own way. Hope, do you have a favorite?
1: No, I don't think so. I was just thinking about that.
2: It's like having to pick your, your favorite child, you know, that's like terrible to make a you know, parent be like, who's your favorite child? And then they're like, oh my gosh, (laughs) like really? It's also
1: different. Like Kate said, the pigs are so easy to communicate with, you know, exactly what they're trying to tell you. So it's really special to watch them, you know?
0: That's a very even handed answer from both of you as parents of all those animals. What you guys do is a huge job. There, um, you're both working full time at Hartwood Haven. Is that? Do you have other jobs as well, or are you full time dedicated to the nonprofit organization?
2: I have been working either as a volunteer, non paid or paid, ever since we started the sanctuary. Now I work here full time, and Hope is quitting her job, put in her resignation, and is going to come work for Hartwood Haven full time here pretty soon.
0: Fantastic. Well, it's a huge job. It takes a lot of dedication. I'm sure it's probably 24-7 for both of you. So thank you so much for coming on our podcast to talk a little bit about what Heartwood Haven is doing. And people who would like to learn some more about your organization can find you at...
2: Our website is heartwoodhaven.org and then we're also on Facebook and Instagram with some really funny content every single day. Funny videos of pigs swimming in ponds and pigs running in the snow, pigs eating pumpkins.
0: Very popular content. I see you've got 22,000 followers.
2: Yes, on Instagram and Facebook. We're just at Heartwood Haven.
0: Great. Thank you both so very
2: much. Thank you, Susan.
1: Thank you.
0: For more about today's guest, as well as actions for animal justice that you can take, please visit sentientplanetpodcast.com and join our pod. We're also on socials at sentientplanetpodcast, and you can support our work on Patreon. Susan Woodward is your host and content producer. Our social media and outreach manager is Ari Simmons. Sound engineering by Liam Wilkinson. Art direction by Janet Grimway. Intro music, The Spaces Between by Scott Buckley. All interstitial music by Stelladrone. Our love to all beings. Thanks for listening.